Hi, this is Matt and Sean from Two Black Guys with good credit from a local business to a global corporation. Partnering with Bank of America gives your operation access to exclusive digital tools, award-winning insights, and business solutions so powerful, you'll make every move matter. Visit bankofamerica.com slash banking for business to learn more. What would you like the power to do? Bank of America, N.A., copyright 2024. After decades of waiting, the James Webb Space Telescope will soon soar into the heavens. If all goes to plan, this cutting-edge observatory will transform our understanding of the cosmos. But is it really worth its $10 billion price tag? Hello and welcome to Babbage from The Economist, our weekly podcast on science and technology. I'm Alok Jha, a science correspondent at The Economist. On today's show, we'll set our gaze on a new observatory bound for space. The new James Webb Space Telescope should open windows of discovery beyond what Hubble can do. Each one of our images will be like a salami slicing of cosmic history. That is going to be a monumental feat of engineering. It's mind-blowing and I I can't wait to, to watch it unfold. We'll hear from the experts involved in developing this mammoth project, including the Director of Science at the European Space Agency and NASA's Head of Science. NASA's job is to take science fiction and take the fiction out of it. Make it science reality. Throughout history, humans have had a certain curiosity about what lies above in the night sky. The James Webb Space Telescope is going to let us see things that we've never had a chance to see before. Gilad Amit is a science correspondent at The Economist. It's safe to say that he's very excited about the upcoming launch. I've probably been waiting for the telescope to launch all my career as a science journalist. Since I started, I've been writing or editing stories that ended with, we'll only know the answer once the James Webb Space Telescope starts sending back data. So I'm very excited for it to do that. But why send a telescope into space in the first place? Astronomical observatories on the ground you know, those dome-shaped buildings usually found in exotic locations on Earth, are what scientists mainly use for observing the night sky. But they do have some limitations. Regular listeners to Babbage will know one of those limitations. A few weeks ago, we explored how artificial satellites in low-Earth orbit can get in the way of telescopes on the ground. Observatories in space are one way to get around this problem. But these space observatories were originally conceived to overcome a different problem. The idea has actually been around for well over a century. That's Jennifer Wiseman. She's the senior project scientist for the Hubble Space Telescope at NASA. The reason it is in space is not to take it significantly closer to the objects we want to observe in deep space with the telescope, but rather it is to get it above the atmosphere of the Earth.
Earth's atmosphere can actually degrade observations of deep space if we have to look through the atmosphere. The atmosphere can blur the light as it bounces around through the turbulence, and it can even filter out some of the light that we would like to see, like ultraviolet light. The benefits of telescopes based in space were first proposed in 1946 by Lyman Spitzer, an astrophysicist at Yale University. It wasn't long before space had become a battleground for Cold War competition. In October 1957, the Soviet Union successfully launched the first artificial satellite, Sputnik. America responded the following January in 1958 with its own satellite, Explorer 1. You can send this off to the secretary. That our satellite is definitely on orbit. Later that year, Congress passed the Space Act, establishing the National Aeronautics and Space Administration, or NASA. We have one of the most challenging assignments that has ever been given to modern man. Expansion of human knowledge about space. Development and operation of vehicles capable... Very soon after its creation, scientists at NASA started to imagine what a space telescope might look like. For NASA, the discussion started getting serious in the 1960s, and then as the scientific community in the U.S. and even worldwide began to advocate for this kind of a platform very seriously, in the 1970s, NASA began to advocate itself. Making the telescope a reality took another two decades of development. But finally, in 1990, the Hubble Space Telescope was launched. And liftoff of the Space Shuttle Discovery with the Hubble Space Telescope, our window on the universe. I was a graduate student in the 1990s, so we were all extremely excited about this new space telescope that would enable us to see with more precision in other kinds of light, visible light. All of us, no matter what kind of research we were doing, were anticipating, like everyone else was, what this might reveal about the deep universe. But soon after launch, NASA realised there was a problem with Hubble. This is sort of the infamous beginning of the actual operations of the observatory. All eyes around the world were looking up, so to speak, excited about this new window to the universe. And the first images that came back from the Hubble Space Telescope were a little disappointing. They were not as sharp and clear as we had hoped. They were not really much better than what you could see from a telescope on the ground. And so this, of course, caused great consternation and a quick analysis from experts revealed that the mirror within Hubble, which is about 2.4 meters in diameter, had been ground to a very smooth and wonderful precision, but to a slightly incorrect shape. is that there's a significant spherical aberration appears to be present in the optical telescope system optics. And that created a problem in the images, which basically degrades their sharpness and quality. Of course, this was a huge disappointment, but also a huge embarrassment for 
NASA and it created all kinds of negative responses from taxpayers and and lawmakers who had supported the observatory who were angry and then even from uh, you know late night television comedians who made jokes about it so it was not good number 10 the guy at Sears promised it would work fine number 9 David Letterman even uh, compiled a list of top 10 Hubble excuses number 6 bum with squeegee smeared lens at red light number 5 number 5 But this story has a happy follow-on. The observatory had been designed from the very beginning to be serviced by astronauts over and over again. That would keep the telescope operating you know, almost in perpetuity. So quickly, the first servicing mission was redesigned to be a repair mission, if you will, so that the astronauts who went back to the telescope in 1993 put in new equipment onto the Hubble Observatory that would correct the optics for Hubble. Power on three, torque at 10, double check so ever since 1993, the data from Hubble have been just perfect, and we are so pleased. Hubble has gone on to have an outstanding career. When you look at what Hubble has discovered, and you compare that to what Hubble promised to discover, Hubble actually has fulfilled its task, but it has done about 20 times more. Gunter Harzinger is the Director of Science at the European Space Agency, which co-developed and operates Hubble with NASA. To his mind, one of the telescope's most unexpected findings came in 2017, when it glimpsed an intriguing flying object. Think about Oumuamua, which is this interstellar visitor that nobody was even dreaming of. The object, Oumuamua, came close to the sun and then shot away again, never to return. Based on its orbit, it didn't originate from our solar system. Hubble has found that this object is accelerating away from us, and that has caused a lot of discussion of whether there are little green men in, the, in that object or not. <laughs> but Hubble has been providing a lot more than just evidence of cosmic quirks. Hubble is an incredible general-purpose observatory that has opened our eyes to a universe we really didn't know that much about, as we see now. Um, everything from what's going on in our local universe, in the solar system, to the distant universe. In the local universe, we've been able to see how the weather on these planets changes. We've been able to see things, for example, like that great red spot on Jupiter, the giant storm. We've even been able to detect the presence of water vapor being spewed out from at least one of its moons. Hubble has detected and confirmed that there are supermassive black holes in the cores of most galaxies.
And Hubble has measured the expansion rate of the universe, which is one of its original goals, to such precision that we now know not only the rate of expansion and the approximate age of the universe of 13.8 billion years, but we've also confirmed that that expansion is accelerating. It's getting faster. And whatever's pushing it apart, we're calling that dark energy. So Hubble has opened our eyes to a range of phenomena from our own neighborhood to the scale of the entire universe. The accelerated expansion of the universe, like that, that fundamental dark energy thing, that's, that's Hubble. That's Joe DiPasquale at the Space Telescope Science Institute in Baltimore. He's responsible for taking the data from Hubble and turning it into those astonishing pictures that we all know and love. And that was something that no one realized Hubble would even be able to answer questions about when it was designed. So that's the kind of stuff that really excites me, is sort of the unknown unknowns that Webb will shed some light on for us. The James Webb Space Telescope, or JWST, promises to build on Hubble's findings with more advanced ways of capturing astronomical data. But in terms of like what I'm excited to look at with Webb, I think the first galaxies, you know, the, the, the deep field images of galaxy clusters that Webb will look at, you know, it's going to peer much further into the past than Hubble has been able to. While its bigger brother will soon be orbiting the sun, Hubble will continue to whiz around the Earth. We are excited about the Hubble continuing because Hubble is actually in excellent scientific shape right now. And we anticipate Hubble will keep operating well, hopefully throughout this decade and maybe beyond. Hubble is your more conventional tin can telescope. Gilad Amit again. It has a primary mirror for capturing light and a secondary mirror into which that light is reflected, and those are both contained within a single cylinder. James Webb is slightly more futuristic. It looks, in my view, like a sort of piece of honeycomb on top of the the wrapper that it came in. It's these golden hexagons which form the primary mirror on top of this kind of silvery sheet that is a sunshield that is meant to obscure the sun's rays. If the sunshield were bottled up and sold on the high street, it would boast a sun protection factor of one million. The specific point in space where the telescope will sit is called L2, the second Lagrange point, where the gravitational pulls of the Sun and the Earth are balanced. Unlike Hubble, JWST will orbit the Sun rather than the Earth. When it's at L2, JWST will be as big as a tennis court, but in order to fit inside the rocket that'll take it there, the telescope will have to be folded up in a nanometer-precise origami. I sometimes compare uh, James Webb to a butterfly before it is unfolding. You know that the butterfly first is like a puppet. Gunter Harzinger, the Director of Science at the European Space Agency, which co-developed JWST. And then it breaks off its shield, uh, which James Webb is doing with the fairing, and then it's unfolding like a butterfly. But it's a butterfly with five wings, which are layered on top of each other. So everything is much more complicated. 
It'll take six months to properly unfold and calibrate the telescope. If any of these delicate procedures go wrong, the whole enterprise will be doomed. It's nerve-wracking. <laughs> it's it's going to be really tense time when all that stuff is happening. Joe DiPasquale. But I'm knocking on wood here. Assuming everything goes to plan, which it should because it's been tested and tested and tested again, that is going to be a monumental feat of engineering to have this extremely complicated system basically do everything by itself autonomously in space as it's traveling to its final destination and then start taking data. That whole story is just, it's mind-blowing and I, I can't wait to, to watch it unfold. The JWST is also bigger. The primary mirror is about six times bigger in area than Hubble's, which means it's a lot more sensitive to light. And the more light you can collect, the further you can see into the universe. In fact, JWST will be around a hundred times more sensitive than Hubble. And that's not just because of its size. It's also due to the telescope's ability to capture infrared light. Hubble was designed to sort of enhance the perception of light that we have with our eyes. You know, it's a visible light telescope, so it sees mostly the same light wavelengths that we see with our eyes. It does extend a little bit into infrared and ultraviolet as well. But as you move further and further away and the universe is expanding, that light gets redshifted and it gets shifted out of the visible spectrum and into infrared. Light stretches with the expansion of the universe. So light that once had very narrow wavelengths gets longer and longer wavelengths over time or is redshifted because it shifts towards the red end of the spectrum. And that's why Webb will be so powerful because it'll be looking for these same characteristics but just in infrared instead of visible. There's two reasons you want to work in the infrared. James Dunlop heads the School of Physics and Astronomy at the University of Edinburgh in Scotland. One is that you can see deeper into our own galaxy in the Milky Way because it's full of what's called cosmic dust. So if you want to explore planets through the dust and search for life on other planets, astronomically speaking, quite locally, essentially to answer that fundamental question, is life unique to our planet? And the other reason you might want to look in the infrared is that these distant galaxies, they're not just far away, they're also reddened due to the expansion of the universe. And by the time you're looking for galaxies only about a billion years after the Big Bang, that redshift is so severe that they're utterly invisible in the optical and the UV. You need to build an instrument that will be really cold, can be kept cold, and move it well away from the Earth so the Earth doesn't warm it up with its own radiation. By looking in the infrared, JWST will be able to see light that was emitted 13 and a half billion years ago. That's just a few hundred million years after the formation of the universe in the Big Bang. Telescopes are often referred to as time machines because what they allow you to do is look at light that was emitted a very long time ago. Our science correspondent, Kilad Amit again. And because JWST is sensitive to infrared light, it can detect light that has been redshifted so much that if it was emitted in the first few hundred million years after the universe was formed, it could detect it. As JWST looks back in time, it'll see the various life stages of the universe. 
to get some bearings, we see the sun as it was eight minutes ago. Okay, it's 93 million miles and light's fast, but it's not instantaneous. Each one of our images will contain galaxies at progressively bigger and bigger distances. So it will be like a salami slicing of cosmic history. You can actually tell from the colours of these objects, the chemical makeup of these galaxies, so you can see if the early galaxies contain the elements that make you and me, like iron in our blood and oxygen that we breathe. Because we expect the very, very first galaxies not to have any of these elements, because the only elements that were made in the Big Bang were hydrogen and helium. So there's a kind of a holy grail of cosmology is to find the very first galaxies which should be free of these kind of elements. Hunting for exoplanets and observing the origins of the early universe will keep JWST busy for many years to come. But some researchers also want to use the telescope to gather information on the nature of dark matter and dark energy. In the present day universe, we've got basically 5% normal stuff, 25% near enough dark matter. And then from doing a kind of census of how many galaxies there are in these early times can tell you the nature of dark matter because the dark matter has to drive the early structure formation. And then the remaining nearly three quarters of the universe, this thing that people call dark energy, which appears to be driving the acceleration of the universe. JWST will carry out this dizzying array of science using some exquisitely precise instruments. So JWST, in addition to the mirrors and the sun shield, has four instruments. Three of them are able to look a little bit into the infrared, into what's called the near-infrared, and one called MIRI is the only one that's really able to push the boundary and go into the so-called mid-infrared. And the reason that is so exciting is because the further into the infrared you go, the further back in time you're able to see. MIRI was a late addition to JWST. To work properly, it needs temperatures that are even colder than the rest of the telescope. So it's been fitted with a bespoke cooling system. That had to be fitted with what's called a cryo-cooler to really lower it to temperatures fractionally above absolute zero. And designing that and making that sufficiently robust as to survive the juddering it'll experience at launch was a real challenge, and that took, that took a long time. It was also very expensive. In 2015, half of NASA's financial reserve for the telescope went on maintaining the cryocooler. Overall, the telescope, which is a joint venture between NASA as well as the European and Canadian space agencies, has cost almost $10 billion. It's a far cry from the original $500 million price tag first proposed in 1996. Coming up, is the James Webb Space Telescope worth the money? Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. 
The cost overrun wasn't JWST's only problem. The telescope was supposed to launch in 2007. That's 14 years ago. I think the reason the original launch date was so optimistic is because there wasn't a full appreciation of just how complicated this telescope was to design. That's our science correspondent, Gilad Amit, again. There were a dozen technologies essential to this telescope that weren't even invented by the time it was proposed. So they all had to be designed and invented, and then everything had to be combined. So it was a mammoth engineering task, and the complexity just wasn't appreciated early on. If it works, assuming it all deploys, which hardly even 200 different things have to go right, assuming that's going to work, the science will be terrific. Martin Elvis works at the Harvard-Smithsonian Centre for Astrophysics in Cambridge, Massachusetts. My impression is that perhaps they went too far by trying to go to very long mid-infrared wavelengths with the MIRI instrument. That meant they had to make a much colder telescope, which meant they had to invent a whole new lightweight cryogenic mirror technology. That was a big deal. So you could say, well, should we just abandon the mid-infrared? Well, if you had a mid-infrared instrument only, then because the wavelengths are longer, your mirror surface doesn't have to be as good. So if you split the concept into two, you'd have much less of a technological challenge. So I think that's a sort of trade that wasn't really done very carefully for some reason. And I think everybody probably would agree with this, is you do a lot more upfront study to solve the technology problems before you commit to building the whole thing. Now, they did that, or a lot of that, with James Webb. In fact, they passed all their reviews, so something was wrong with that review process because it didn't surface the problems. The delays have continued right up to launch. A clamp that connects the telescope to the launch vehicle broke in late November. In the past week, a communications problem has been spotted. In some ways, the delays at this stage are understandable. NASA wants to launch a completely faultless space telescope, and so the agency is not going to leave anything to chance. It hopes that the recent minor problems will all be resolved quickly. And after all, JWST's engineers have had to deal with much more alarming problems in the past, like a worrying hardware issue in 2018. What I do remember hearing about was the shocking shake test that happened late in the development and and lots of washers and nuts fell off, which were holding the sun shield in place. And that really was a shock. You don't go into a shake test unless you know the answer. And I've I've never heard of a, a major mission having that kind of failure so late in the game. So I suppose that means there was some management problem. And I can't tell you whether it lay on the NASA side or the spacecraft vendor's side, because I wasn't privy to it. But somebody clearly made a mistake in oversight there. It's fair to say that when it comes to getting funding for major projects like JWST, NASA has operated under a kind of culture of certainty. There's probably some aspect of that, inevitably, when you feel that you're too big to fail. Whereas if you know that if you fail you will be cancelled because NASA has a backup, another mission in development, which will also be great and they can make lots of great science out of and press releases out of, then you feel more uh, 
you feel a certain pressure, which is good. There's no question that JWST has been plagued by problems. But to understand the causes, once again, we need to take a trip back in time. In 1995, at that moment in time, the telescope is a four-meter telescope with, uh, you know, a lot less complexity initially than what is there. That's Thomas Zerboken, the head of science at NASA. Our correspondent, Gilad Amit, recently asked him to reflect on JWST. Within a year, the then NASA administrator is an incredibly visionary guy. His name was Stan Gold and basically said, not only should you do a four-meter telescope, you should do an eight-meter telescope. So if somebody says you should go from four-meter to eight-meter, you're talking about a totally different telescope. It's not stretching the telescope. It's a totally different telescope with roughly four times the cost. The next key delay was really what I would say the technology delays. So what happens if you have two technologies, there's one interface. If you have three technologies, there's three interfaces, then it goes squared. It took longer, it was harder, which is, by the way, that's what happens if you invent a totally new generation telescope. And frankly, we found a lot more problems, many more problems than we should. So for us, for me personally, an embarrassing kind of finding that we were making these mistakes, but also that we figured out some system engineering issues about folding and so forth that we had to learn. And we we learned later than we should have learned. Okay, so since the JWST project started, there have been these two major reports commissioned to investigate why it's been so delayed. The first um, was the Cassani report in 2010, and that identified all sorts of problems in NASA's management and leadership. But then the IRB report, the Independent Review Board uh, that you commissioned in 2018, a line from that struck me because it mentioned how with so much money and time having already been invested in the project, the most important thing now was to see it through to completion rather than stick to any budget or schedule. And that suggests to me that at a certain point in the past, it wasn't too late to cancel it. And perhaps the call should have been made to pull the plug. And I wonder how how you respond to that. So I would say that the recommendation that came from the IRB was a really good reminder for me and everybody else between me all the way down. I took that personally. It's like, it's my job to make sure that everybody understands after you spend five plus billion dollars, six plus billion dollars on a telescope, mission success is the most important thing. Because the last thing we want to do is save a million dollars and fail at the deployment. Because somebody rushed when we went and we launched Mars 2020 Perseverance in the middle of COVID. Just before COVID, I actually wrote a letter to the world workforce and reminded him of the priorities. First, mission success. Second, schedule. Third, cost. Now, I want to tell you, this was a really hard letter for me to write because I don't want to blow it on cost, ever. Because I think we should be grateful to the taxpayers and their elected officials that represent them for every dollar we're spending on this amazing telescope. But at the same time, it is not in the interest of the taxpayer that we save a microscopic amount of money and blow it. One of the things that comes up a lot is talking about the culture of over-optimism in terms of the initial cost estimates, in the assumption that budget overruns will be met. 
I wonder if if you take those criticisms on board, does that need to change? Is it being changed for future missions? Since Webb, every single mission that NASA has done, if we compare all the money we said in a graded fashion, we're going to spend on this mission and the money we actually spent before launch, we actually underran the budget in an integrated fashion. That is because we started planning in reserves in our missions, which is what the Kasani report said we needed to do. We made it part of every single one of our missions. So are we changing this? Heck yes. Are we already at the right place of kind of optimism and realism? Uh, I think that's going to be an ongoing process because what we're really committed to at NASA is to be an innovative organization. We need to create the right balance. As an agency, NASA's job is to, I'm going to quote my boss, the new administrator, Senator Nelson, is to take science fiction and take the fiction out of it. Make it science reality. Right. So the experience of putting web together and seeing how it dragged on has in, in theory, looking back in 20 years' time, you'll be able to say Webb is what changed the way NASA ran its, its missions. That's absolutely correct. Gilad, JWST has cost about five times more than perhaps it should have done. And every day that it's delayed adds another million dollars to the bill. Do you think that the project should have just been cancelled at some point along the way? Well, I think I, I'm very glad it's going ahead. But I think looking at the sums in a sort of cold, hard fashion, it probably should have been cancelled. And I mean, it's been subject to lots of independent reports over the years, lots of kind of crisis moments for it. And the most recent report, which was in 2018, I think, it seemed from the outside like they were saying, really, we should have had this thing cancelled before. But now that it's at this point, better launch it. What are the lessons you think that astronomers could learn from JWST and its delays and all of that? I guess the simple but boring answer is project management, especially when it comes to something of this scale. There was just an assumption going into it that it was going to be a lot simpler to pull off than it was. And I think an expectation that no matter how expensive it got, someone would foot the bill. And that proved to be the case. But the astronomers I talked to who were kind of involved in the administrative side said that the experience has really transformed the way that they will budget and plan space missions and also hopefully make them more ruthless about cutting them when they go over budget. When the project was started, I believe the name of the telescope was just something nondescript like the Next Generation Space Telescope. That's right, yeah. Eventually, in the early 2000s, it was renamed James Webb Space Telescope. Could you tell us who James Webb was and why there's been some controversy about his name being attached to this telescope? So James Webb was an administrator of NASA in the 1960s in the build-up to the moon landings. And... There's been a a fair bit of controversy because as an administrator at the State Department prior to NASA and at NASA, he is thought to have been involved to one degree or another with gay, lesbian employees losing their jobs and being hounded out of the departments. And NASA has said they were going to look into it. They uh, commissioned a historian to look into it. And as far as they're concerned, there wasn't sufficient evidence to warrant a renaming. But they've been less than transparent about releasing the evidence. And as far as 
many astronomers are concerned astronomy isn't a particularly inclusive field at the moment. And the notion of naming this telescope that should be this great beacon of inspiration to everybody after somebody so controversial is a bit of a slap in the face. So many are choosing to call it the the, the just wonderful space telescope instead, keeping the acronym but losing the reference to, to the man. <laughs> the, the JWST is going to cost on the order of $10 billion, plus more to actually run in this to the future, and hopefully it'll have a long future. You know, that's a lot of money. Is there any alternative to just building bigger, even more expensive space telescopes like this? Because there hopefully will be more space telescopes in the future. It, it feels like the compromise is always between how far do you want to push the envelope at once? Because the telescope incorporates a number of different instruments, and the, the James Webb telescope was initially recommended in a once-per-decade survey that came out in 2001. Um, the most recent iteration of this survey came out earlier this year, and they propose a number of different telescopes that are supposed to cost between three and five billion each, so between a third to half of what the James Webb has cost. So it's possible that dividing eggs between multiple baskets and perhaps being more ruthless about saying, you know, when is a basket worth dropping might be a better policy going forward. You talked about the decadal survey just there. This is the US National Academies will review every decade what the priorities for astronomy should be. And as you say, in 2001, they recommended the JWST and it's taken very seriously by NASA and the government funders. Give us a bit of a flavour of the kinds of things that the, the cutting edge of astronomy will look like in the next decade or two. So I think burnt by the experience of James Webb and the intervening decadal survey, its recommendations have had to be delayed because of the long shadow of James Webb is still hanging over the field. They have asked for diversifying the selection. And rather than going in the infrared, it seems they'll be looking at the other end of the spectrum, at X-rays and extreme ultraviolet radiation, which is very exciting because these are the kinds of rays emitted by some of the most powerful and mysterious objects in the universe, like black holes. Another priority, which is, I guess, in keeping with what the public is most interested in, will be looking for exoplanets and potentially those that are habitable or, or that do contain life. Well, I, for one, am very excited indeed. Gilad, thank you very much. Thanks so much, Anna. JWST will change our view of the universe. If all goes well, in the next few years, we'll all be updating our screensavers with far more breathtaking images of the cosmos. More importantly, scientists will understand so much more about the objects in the night sky and how they came to be. As JWST's stream of data starts to feed all that human curiosity, the spacecraft will also hopefully, be able to leave behind its troubled, delayed birth. Our thanks to Jennifer Wiseman, Joe de Pasquale, Gunter Harzinger, James Dunlop, Martin Elvis and Thomas Zobochen. And don't forget, you can keep up with all the latest analysis on Earth and beyond by subscribing to The Economist 
it might even make a great gift for someone. Listeners can get a special introductory offer at economist.com slash podcast offer. The link is in the show notes. Babbage is produced by Jason Hoskin and mixed by Nico Rofast. The executive producer is Hannah Mourinho. And special thanks also to William Warren, Avisoya Osundairo, Amika Ciotino-Nolan and Sandra Schmueli for putting the show together throughout the year. We'll be back on Tuesday the 4th of January 2022. Thanks for listening and happy holidays from all of us. I'm Alok Jha and in London, but looking up at the stars, this is The Economist. Hi, this is Matt and Sean from Two Black Guys with good credit. If you own or operate a business, whether it's a local operation or a global corporation, partnering with Bank of America could be your smartest move. By teaming with Bank of America, you'll enjoy exclusive digital tools, award-winning insights, and business solutions so powerful, you'll make every move matter. Position your business to capitalize on opportunity in a moment's notice. Visit bankofamerica.com slash bankingforbusiness to learn more. What would you like the power to do? Bank of America, N.A., copyright 2024.